This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And let's talk about something other than COVID, at least for half an hour. Uh, We've got scandals brewing in the military with a big potential to hurt the Trudeau government. First, there were allegations against former Chief of Defense Staff Jonathan Vance, allegations of sexual impropriety, inappropriate sexual behavior. Then, more of the same against his replacement, Admiral Art McDonald. And those came out just weeks after he took over, which is another high-profile case that has people wondering whether this government can do any vetting at all. And now the plot is thickening. There are allegations that the officer who brought forward uh, these charges was threatened anonymously. Also, the defense minister has been insisting that he took action, asking Art McDonald to step aside as soon as he learned of these problems. Well, a former military ombudsman says, no, that's not the case. He came to the defense minister with some kind of evidence long time ago, and the minister put up his hands and said, don't want to hear it. So what is the truth of all of these things? The response so far is a major shakeup of the senior ranks, which featured the promotion of Lieutenant General Francis Allen to vice chief, as you heard in Bob's News, making her the first woman to hold this position. And That explanation's been so long and convoluted that I won't even lay out the latest on the We Charity scandal and the Kielberger brothers, which is back at the top of the agenda. So why don't we start there? I'd like to welcome Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Sousa, former Minister of Finance for Ontario and Liberal MPP, and John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Hey, everyone. Okay, let us begin with John. And just uh, off the top, uh, this military, the all of this that's happening in the military, it, does it have a, a, a big chance to grab the attention and, and really hurt the government? Well, I think it does. I, I think with anything that, that affects the military and, and certainly the, the government's inapt. Uh, uh, you know, inaptness at, at trying to uh, trying to fix this, or, or or more importantly, the cover up, which is usually worse than than, than the situation uh, on on a number of fronts. Uh, I think it, it does it can actually get the public's attention. I think the silver lining in all this is that they they're able to promote uh, a very strong woman by the name of uh, Frances Allen to uh, to the vice chief of defense staff, and I think that is a silver lining. And and I know that uh, from from some of the statements that I've heard, not only from Erin O'Toole and others, there's a lot of respect and admiration for the work that she's done in the military. So that is a, that is good news. But, you know, I think it speaks to what you were mentioning in the outset, too, Libby, which is the government's vetting process. You know, we saw this with the governor general. We saw this with some other folks. And, and to be able to have two, you know, they got rid of one def- uh, chief of defense uh, uh, staff, and then they got somebody else coming in. And now, so it just seems to be this pattern of of other just, you know, making quick decisions and, and not thinking things through and not doing the proper vetting or sticking their head in the sand, you know, and, and not wanting to sort of address any potential controversy or, or, or more, more, or worse in some cases, thinking that Canadians won't care, you know, that they're sort of above, above reproach to liberals and they, they won't have, you know, anything that happens to them won't stick to them. Either case, it's just not good. Uh, it's not good for the military, and it's not good for the prime minister's uh, uh, perception, quite frankly. And at some point, it will trickle to the Canadians, and Canadians will take note of this. Karen, as a woman, how do you per- perceive this? Well, you know, I, I agree with what John has has said, and also that you know, it's a 
again, it's just a bit of a head scratcher because this is so off brand for the liberals to think that, you know, something was brought to their attention about potential misconduct, sexual misconduct, and nothing was done. You know, I, I think that that is just so counter to everything that Trudeau personally has been advocating for during his tenure as prime minister. So the fact that it was taking place and it was brought to the attention of a cabinet minister and, and yet nothing was done to address it. And it was, in fact, perpetuated because the person who brought forward the and, you know, and I understand there's more to the story. Of course, there's always more to the story. But, you know, but on its face, the government has taken swifter action with less in front of it than actually having an ombudsman say, I actually do have evidence. I just don't know how to proceed with it. And then to be told, no, don't uncover it. It, well, it, also, I, I think for pe- personally, I think for me, that's one of the most troubling aspects of it. Well, uh, I have to say for, for, for me, too, uh, although, I mean, that particular minister is a veteran and uh, whatever uh, kind of, uh, you know, um, the culture of, of protecting each other or the, the, the boys culture there, uh, you know, it, it just has to make you wonder. Charles, what's your view? Yeah, there's a lot of soul searching going on here. And uh, issue about uh, trying to determine who are the best candidates. I mean, it's a pervasive issue. This happened during the Conservatives when John Vance was appointed, and of course now this happened again with Art McDonald. I'm more concerned about guys like Officer Raymond Totter, who is the whistleblower trying to, in this case, with regards to uh, Art McDonald, trying to determine, you know, how is he supposed to report these misconducts that come to him. And how are the victims uh, being treated as a, cor- as a result? And this is a bigger issue just beyond the military. It's, it's everywhere. I mean, it's a, in politics, it's in the military, it's in corporates, it's in churches, it's in charities. There's a lot of issues that have to be dis- resolved in the way we tolerate this kind of misconduct and how we then report it to protect the very individuals that are being affected. Yeah, I mean, on on the other hand, I have to say, so, you know, it's against the rules in the military to have relationships with your subordinates. It's it's frankly a bad idea in business anywhere, but it happens. And in my mind, you know, frankly, it's very different than any kind of sexual assault. Fair enough. And there, there needs to be um, a way to provide uh, reporting and correction. I mean, in the military, there's this notion over the years in both Canada, the U.S., and elsewhere that it's kind of tough. You know, it's how we are. Well, it's not, right? And hazing is not appropriate either. Um, so there's a lot of things that have to change in the way we view uh, what the military stands for. And I, you know, I, I, I got to be encouraged now that Francis Allen has been appointed to this role. Maybe we'll have more women involved in the military. There's only about 16%. The 20% are actually women in the military. This may encourage more to be, to step up. I mean, we see some in the United States running for president. I mean, we need to encourage and to accept and to provide some degree of safety that these individuals won't be tarnished when they come out and start to highlight some of the mis- misconduct that exists. I mean, the, the other thing is that even with that, uh, I was reading, and I'm sure that she is extremely well qualified and well respected, but that, uh, the, the position wasn't vacant. The guy who was in it, and I, I did not read one way or another whether he was good or bad at his job, but both she in her immediately previous position and he were only in their new position since the summer. So this is kind of, I mean, I am sure that she is deserving, but this is kind of hastily done, like a, as a little Band-Aid. And, and to me, that, that, that doesn't smell quite right either, John. Well, no. And, and, and again, I think it's sort of typical of the, of the liberals and, and how they sort of deal with crisis communications, which is to say, oh, shoot, we've got a problem here. What do we do to need to fix it? Oh, here's a solution. Let's get, let's make this happen, or let's put this bandaid on this open gush, a gush of a wound. <laughs> um, but in this case, I think you know they they rightfully looked at, at at the situation and said, look, we've got to obviously make sure that we've got more women in, in in leadership positions, which which quite frankly they should have thought about and should have had it as a general plan from the beginning, as opposed to waiting for a crisis to happen. But again, you know, not to take anything away from 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 Lieutenant General Francis Allen, I think she's going to be a wonderful 
uh, a vice chief of the defense staff, and, and by all accounts, uh, you know, from what I'm hearing, she was quite talented. So I think that that's a good move. But again, it does speak to the problem that you know they have to. They, this is more of a of a reaction or a reactive mood than a proactive mood. And and, and it, what, what Karen was saying about it is counter to, to the brand of this government. You know, this is the prime minister that came in, you know, was as a feminist prime minister, and he was going to be, you know, defending women's rights and, and, and you know, in politics and abroad. Um, you know, and we've seen, you know, most 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 of his cabinet, women cabinet, had to leave or left because of, of issues that, that came up through through some of his some of his de- dealings or his leadership. Uh, and then some of these issues, we saw this, the same thing with the RCMP. It was rampant within the RCMP, the allegations of sexual harassment. And now they're going under, uh, undergoing some review and investigation. Um, I, uh, all that to say to Libya is I'm glad there's a third party that, that is looking at it. I think they've, they've brought in an investigative committee or at least commissioned one to look into this. But but without a doubt, to your question, this this was more of a reactive. And, and I think, as I said earlier on, I think it's a civil lining in this all, through this mess is that we've got somebody in the in the, in the capable hands of, of Lieutenant General Francis Allen. But it was a reactive move, not a proactive move. And they should be thinking much more proactively on on strategy how to get women more involved in not only the military but in other leadership roles. Yeah, and Karen, do you feel a little patronized by this kind of a move? You know, I. Uh, I I have two feelings. You know, one is that you know we we went through the Me Too movement, which was which was really wretched. It was wretched in so many ways. Number one, it's that still going that, on, by the way, <laughs> and it's still going on. And and you know, and then you know, and then there was a dismissal, I think, of it because maybe it had gone too far, and, and people were complaining for things that actually may or may not have been um, a power based move, which is what this was. This is really about power and influence. It's not about a relationship. It's really about how do you use your influence and power. Um, you know, it to a, with a subordinate, which is, you know, what the entire Me Too movement was supposed to be addressing, you know, and here we have it in our midst, you know, and if, if we're, you know, if the timeline holds, it was during that movement that this was brought to the attention of the defense minister. So for heaven's sakes, what, what was, you know, what, what's going on? Like, wh- why, why, <laughs> what is the disconnect between the words that are said and the actions that are taken? And, you know, I hope... I hope that this woman is successful in her role. It sounds like she's extremely confident, and maybe, you know, maybe the t- this is her time to shine, and let's hope so. Um, you know, but it, it, it's just so frustrating because, you know, everyone says the right words at the right time, and yet the actions don't change. And so what is it going to take for women to actually be able, you know, during International Women's Month or week or day yeah. or whatever? <laughs> say, oh, we get a whole month now. How nice. Pardon <laughs> <laughs> me? I said we get a whole month now. How nice. <laughs> Oh, great. We get a whole month to be overlooked. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean it, it's just, it, you know, the, the whole thing. And, and Charles, it, it comes back to the same issues that cropped up with Julie Payette. And that is, you know, what is with the government? Can, can they not vet it? I mean, you know, any one of us who has ever hired anybody, we can do that. It's not that hard. Yeah, and, and that is an issue. I mean, there is a, a lot of desire to have more women in leadership roles. The notion of this power struggle that existed in the military and the chain of command that made uh, both of these women victims uh, in 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 politics and elsewhere. I mean, uh, I mean, John, there is there is work being done to try to have more representation of women in cabinet, more representation in the Senate. And even women on boards and corporates through the securities commissions trying to find ways to encourage. And in fact, we note that when there are more diversity and more gender diversity on these boards and so forth, they outperform uh, in other instances. So that is important as an economic situation as well as a societal issue. But what do we do to vet proper people to those roles? It's always going to be a challenge, be it men and or women. And obviously, we are seeing that here. Uh- let us turn to the We Charity scandal and the Kielberger Another brothers. Controversy. <laughs> <laughs> this is the 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 charity that keeps giving, at least from our point of view. So, uh, since the whole first round of it, uh, they've been coming under fire for what I would call fraudulent practices where, uh, you know, people, uh, donors give them money for specific purposes. And, and we had this quite 
tragic story of Reed Cowan, a donor whose four-year-old son died, and he raised a lot of money to put a school in Kenya in his child's name, and then uh, finds that the plaque's taken off and somebody else's name has been put on it. And then we hear from former staffers that this was a common practice, that as soon as donors came to visit, things were shined up and their name was put on things and taken down. And and so they're summoned. And their first reaction is, hey, we're not coming. We don't have to talk to you. And they changed their minds. Uh, so, uh, Charles, um, why don't you pick up the story? Yeah, I really feel for, for Reed Cowan in this respect because he's thinking, you know, this is something in the memory of his son. All of this was being done. And, you know, I hear some of these allegations in the past. Um, but the Kilberger brothers, you know, there have been now, I think, between the conservatives and, and the NDP, six agencies have now been issued complaints in respect to their allegations. And now, of course, uh, they've been summoned, and they weren't going to come. Then they said they had to come. I mean, obviously, William McDowell, I guess their lawyer, uh, guy, they, they recognize that they should be there. But they're going to be very cautious in their responses relative to what may or may not be investigated by the RCMP or the CRA. Um, I, mean, I, let, I feel people just... should be held accountable, especially when you're receiving an award of $912 million in a contract. There's got to be better transparency. And this situation isn't just hurting the Kilberger brothers. It's hurting all kinds of charities who are now under a microscope to make certain that they're taking the proper measures to be that transparent and to acknowledge where the money is going and, who's, and what it's being intended for. Um, it's a tough, tough issue. Now, on the other hand, having been a politician myself and having been elected, I also recognize the gimmicks and the, and the work that some of the opposition are going to try to do to take on these charges and build them out prior to having a proper investigation by lawyers and the legal system. So they do deserve fair process. And I know in certain circumstances before, allegations were made, and just the notion of making the allegation was enough to make a story when they had no basis. Although, in this case, there's been a lot of, a lot of stuff written about a lot of what's happening, and, and uh, we need to investigate. Uh, Karen, I mean, that's one of the big... Uh issues of fallout is this affects is affecting the way people view charities. You're a charity. I mean, tell us from your personal perspective. Yeah, there's no question that there's, um, you know, when, when this type of activity takes place, it's not, it, it's not just assigned to the charity that it occurred to. It's assigned to charities across the board. And when there's cynicism or um, suspicion about how money is being raised and spent, then that's, that, that has an impact across the sector. And, you know, in this case, it's, this is, you know, this is the, we're watching the unfortunate collapse of what was really a charitable empire, right? We had um, significant sponsors doing work in, you know, schools and communities across the globe. And now it's just crumbling in our midst. And it was, you know, you pull, you pull the thread and the whole, you know, the whole ball of yarn unravels. And, you know, at some point I'm, assuming, you know, personally, the, the brothers are like, okay, enough is enough already. Like, how much more can you take from us? But on the, on the other hand, they do need to be held to account for um, the practices that they chose to live by. And that the, the, I think the consequences and what we're seeing is, is a result of some of the decisions that they made, which they need to own to, quite frankly. Uh, and John, I mean, here's the, the, some of the stuff that really struck me. Their first reaction to getting this summons mm-hmm. is saying, uh, "This is we're we're not going to respond. This is just a partisan. This is just a partisan hearing and a partisan body." And then, uh, in a very rare show of unity, all everyone in that committee from every party said, "Hey, we will compel you." to appear if you don't come voluntarily, which I thought that's almost more newsworthy than anything. Yeah, and there's a number of tragedies throughout this whole process and this controversy, and, and not least of which the donors who have, who have donated and, and read uh, the, the, the gentleman you just mentioned, Libby, who, who uh, you know, who uh, has given a lot of money for, for the sake of the memory of his, of his son and, and only to have the, the plaque removed. But that's, a, that's a tragedy. The other tragedy is that it's given, you know, it's potentially leaving some bad taste in mouths of people that might affect other charities. <clears throat> they just think, well, if this big charity is doing this, then 
that maybe others are, are doing that. And that's that's not a good thing at all for, for any charity, uh, big or small. So I think there's a number of, of tragedies. But I think that, that when you look at this, this is sometimes the good. The... Well, they broke. They... Sorry, John, we're losing you. Where are you? Uh, we're losing you, John. So let's uh, move move along to Charles. Uh, what, can you hear me? Uh, now yep. we can hear you. Now you're back. Yeah, I, I don't know what happened. So um, I was just saying that the, the real tragedy here is that, you know, the Liberals prorogued the House um, purposely in order to try to circumvent this particular controversy. And, it's, and it frustrated the opposition. Uh, and then when the House came back and the, and the opposition wanted to sort of have a committee to review this, the Liberals kept blocking it. So it, it's almost their own doing that it's got to this point, Libby, that, that you know, that they're, the committees are getting frustrated because they still need answers that they've never got because the Liberals themselves prorogued the House to stop any inquiries towards we. Uh, does does we, I mean, uh, after all of this time, Charles, in the public mind, is 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 we going to be what it was? Do, does any, I mean, do you think people care anymore? Yeah, I think people do care. And I think uh, it's, you know, this will be the downfall of we, to the extent that they're being challenged for their integrity of their operations. I mean, the success of these two young men, especially Craig, as an 11-year-old who started the the program, um, I mean, the, both of them are members of the Order of Canada for the efforts and the work that they've done. And I've attended many of their events, and I've been there with you know, leaders and captains of industries, and Bill Clinton was at one of the events, in fact. And these were admiral individuals representing Canada on the world stage as young people making a difference. Somehow or other, things caught up to them. And, 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 and part of the problem, I find, is you have to be accountable You've got to be transparent. You're dealing with other people's money, and you've got to manage it effectively. And, and somehow something got lost, and I don't know what it was, and I don't know how they got that contract in the first place to expedite the, the, the almost a billion dollars for the education program. Maybe it was the right thing for them to do, but it wasn't transparent. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to matter. It's going to matter to other charities. It's going to matter to this government. They're going to go through their committee hearings. They're going to determine what activities happen. They'll be cautious about their responses because of, you know, they'll, they'll cite legal uh, uh, separation between politicians. My worry, though, is that they'll make a mockery of it, too. I mean, politics will play a role, and they're going to sort of blow up some of the issues uh, more than they may have been, because these people do have rights. I mean, there's a fairness issue that House has to be uh, attained to. So I, uh, you got to give them the benefit of the doubt, but I uh, tell you, it smells bad. It smells bad. Well, right, because they, they're, or they're, they said they will only attend with counsel and they won't answer questions, I guess, that will incriminate them in uh, criminal inquiry. Now, one thing I want to put on the record, uh, uh, Charles, you said you've attended their events. My first encounter with them as a reporter was way back in the 90s when they sued Toronto Life. And I found from the beginning, from the first time I had a look at them when they were kids, there was something I found profoundly off-putting about them uh, that I still find profoundly (laughs) off-putting about them and insincere. So... No, it's been proven, Libby. It's been yeah, proven, yeah. but but from and, the beginning, you're not the only one, Libby. Pardon? There are a number of people. You know, I, I I have my my kids. You know, they have had up to have they've had opportunity, uh, and they've chose not to proceed in respect to to the organization. They went off to do their own in another way. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know uh, the the makings of the individuals or their families, and I you do hear the stories of some of the real estate holdings and other things. They, there's a lot here at stake uh, for them and for for the donors who have, and there's so many of them. There are so many donors who have participated in the various levels of government who have supported them. Karen, yeah, um, yeah, I, I, I've never had any dealings with weed, but there's no question that it was a very influential charity. Yeah, and uh, you know, as, as Charles and John pointed out, I mean, they had they could go anywhere they want, do anything they want, call anyone they wanted, and. Um, you know, and again, I guess, you know, you rise too quick and too high, and then the fall is that much greater. But uh, certainly, you know, I, I think all charities do need to pay attention. And, and I think that, again, you know, and to John's point, too, which I think is very accurate, like the Liberals, you know, they spent so much time 
not having these hearings take place, that now it's a bigger issue than it probably needed to be if they had just allowed the hearings to unfold at the time. Um, but, you know, I think that the story, it will die out because, again, other things are mattering to people now and it's a bit, it's a bit old. Um, but it is still something we, sh- we need to pay attention to. Okay. Um, we are uh, only have a few minutes left, so uh, we're opening up. You know, if you look at the numbers, uh, the numbers are going back up again, not down, but we're opening up limited capacity. And Karen, while, while, uh, while we're talking to you, so you've already been open for about a week and, and now businesses are opening. Uh, what's your read on that situation? Well, we've opened on a limited basis for people with disabilities, so we're still not even at, um, and, and we don't, we're not that busy, we have limited hours, so we're at the 25% capacity, and um, it, so far everything is smooth. We've, um, you know, the community is very, very uh, pleased that we are open, and they, they are coming back and expressing that they've, you know, that they look forward to coming back, um, you know, in even greater numbers when, with even greater access. Um, and it is tricky because, you know, but the last thing that I think I, everyone is in agreement that we can't open and close again. And so however the, the, the process works that we're allowed to have limited reopening, it, it can't be at the expense of open, close, open, close. And so, and I think you're going to talk about the vaccines later on the show. Yeah. That vaccine distribution is so critical to the health of so many, so, of so many businesses and, and the economy. And uh, also to the question of whether there's an election. Before we go very quickly, Charles and John, uh, do you think there will be a spring or a summer election? Charles. Go ahead, John. Um, okay, John, <laughs> you go first. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, I, I doubt it. I think that if, if, this, uh, if the vaccine, it might be still too early and, and too soon to get people's anxiety levels higher or, or, or people feeling good uh, by, by spring uh, and by summer. I think if there's going to be one, there might be one in the fall. But I, I think it's le- looking less likely there'll be one in the spring. Yeah, I'm not too encouraged by it. I don't think there's an appetite for anybody to have an election just yet. And no one is in real good position to host one or at least fight one. I, that's my, my thinking. Um, I mean, the vaccines are in now, so the federal election, you know, they won't base it on that. They may base it on the distribution of those vaccines, which is a provincial matter, and that's still challenging. Well, they're point. pointing the fingers at each other. Exactly. And, and every every day I hear such big numbers that they mean nothing. You know, a million gajillion vaccines are coming. They're yeah. not here. They're not in people's <laughs> arms. So no. there we go. I mean, I live in Mississauga, and we're still in a shutdown, or I guess whatever zone it is, it's still modified. But there's no vaccines. There's no clinics. I mean, there's opening up clinics everywhere else, and we have high incidences in the Peel region. Oh, wait, I, I you've got fathom that we don't have more more doses coming in this way. Well, well, you're one of the bright lights because Trillium is vaccinating people. Trillium yeah. is doing a good job. Yep, yep. That's that's like about the best that we're getting in Toronto. It's it's really uh, not good. Yeah. Peel region is better. Okay. Well, it's fun. It's, it's I guess it depends where you come from because people in every region feels that they're not being served effectively and they do, and they want more. Bottom line is, get these things in people's arms. Get the, the pharmacists and the doctors, get these things out, especially the ones that don't have to be in refrigeration to that extent. Yeah. Yeah. And now that they've got the vaccines coming, Libby, hopefully that will be the case. Hopefully, but, uh, you know, um, I promise not to talk about it in the first half hour. We are at 1231, <laughs> but, but please don't get me going on this. I, I will be talking about it in the next half hour. Thank you so much, John Capobianco, Karen Stinson, Charles Souza. Really nice. appreciate it. Nice chatting mm-hmm. with all of you. Thank you. Thanks, okay. Thanks everyone. Okay. Bye. We are going to take a break, and when we come back, okay, then we're going to talk about the vaccines. We're going to talk about uh, some very encouraging numbers on what the vaccines have been doing and maybe some not-so-encouraging ones when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Yesterday, the stay-at-home order was lifted here in Toronto, Peel, and Windsor-Essex, and non-essential retailers are allowed to open at reduced capacity. It's a relief for small business owners and 
consumers. So how is it going? What do you think? Have you gone to a store? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-740-4740. And now... I'd like to welcome Tom Mihalik. He is the owner of Tom's Place. Hi, Tom. Thank you very kindly. Yesterday, all my troubles seemed so far away. Oh, that's nice. I cannot believe that yesterday or the day before, we couldn't let anybody into our store. What a great relief. What a great relief. You know, all those, I I gained about 10 or 12 pounds in the last uh, few months because of the lockdown, but I feel that I feel much, so much lighter now that I can allow a customer to come into our store. Well, I know there are... At least you have, at least you have clothes, Tom. You can uh, easily find something in a bigger size. Yeah, yes, yes, I definitely can. And I know there are some restrictions and we still have to be careful. And we know all the COVID protocols and it's in place in my store. They always have been. Tom's Place is a much bigger store than people think it is. It's on two floors, and we have 20,000 square feet of spectacular merchandise, and it's been locked up. And, you know, we have customers that are walking on the street, and they're coming in and saying, Tom, thanks God you're open. Thanks God you're still here. Of course we're here. But a lot of businesses are not as fortunate as, as us. True, true, Tom. Let, let me, so let me ask you, Tom, um, did, did people come yesterday? And what, what was their, you know, mood about coming into the store? And yeah, it's, it's a one-off store, so it's not like going into a mall and all of that stuff. We, we, sold, we sold yesterday three suits, a couple of sport jackets. We sold some sweaters. We sold some belts. Uh, we sold some socks. And for us, this was a big deal. It was a huge, huge deal that actually customers can come into the store and try the clothing on. And that was the key to us, that we couldn't allow customers to come and try it on. We sell tailored clothing. It's sophisticated. It's extremely well-made. You can, I just can't put it in a box and give it to a customer. It's got to be tried. We have to do the alteration. So people were happy. They were excited that there's some normalcy back in their life. And we live in one of the greatest cities. And the people that shop in our, shop in our store are the finest people in the world. And, you know, they like to go out. They like to come down to Kensington Market. They like to come into Tom's Place and say hello. I'm so proud that after 100 days... We're able to allow the customers to come in, and you, you, you know what? Even even with stuff that would be okay. I mean, yesterday I got home and I found a package of some jeans that I I bought online. Well, I opened it, and uh, you know, it was not remotely what I ordered. And I know that even like to do one of those by mail online returns, it's probably going to take a couple of months. Till it all gets sorted out, and it's 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 a pain. You know, it's easier to go into a store and try them on. I I've, I had the opportunity to mail out a few boxes at the post office, and I took them to the post office, and we sent some clothing to some of our friends and customers who called in. And and and, and at the post office, the people that work, they were telling me that the lineup the lineups are big because people bought way more than what they needed, and they had to send it back. It does not work in all cases. You know, there's nothing like shopping for yourself, touching the fabric, feeling the fabric, trying it on. And, you know, and sometimes you, you might like something, but it's more than what you wanted to spend. At Tom's Place, we can, we can make deals. Okay. You know, at Tom's Place, we do give deals. Okay, we know that. Um, so what about your neighbors? Uh, are you uh, worried that some of your neighbors won't be getting back in business? Thank you very kindly. That's a very important question that you ask me. You know, sometimes we forget, you know, now that my troubles are over, my neighbors' troubles are still here. I would like to see some of the restaurants to, to be able to be served on the inside. Only a few customers and I hope that my, my friends that are in the restaurant business that can stay in the business. A lot of them are right at the last legs, but the weather's getting better, and that gives them a lot of hope that maybe the virus will, will you know, it's not going to go up. 
it's going to go down, so the government or the medical officers will allow them to open up. It's been a tough, tough year. Toronto has been locked down, as a matter of fact, for 200 days. I mean, this is the greatest city in the world, the biggest city in Canada, and we're locked down for 200 days. That's a lot. Okay. Tom, uh, great that you're thinking about your neighbors. Uh, glad to hear that it's going well for you, the reopening. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm so proud to be talking to you. And small businesses need a voice. And thank you for allowing me to speak for all of us. Uh, Continue the great work. Okay. Thanks so much. Thank you. Okay, we are taking another break, and when we come back, we will have those encouraging numbers about long-term care and some other numbers, maybe not so great, when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It is one of the few, perhaps the only bright spot in the saga of what happened in long-term care over the course of the pandemic. The death toll here in Ontario is staggering 3,748 souls. But now that residents in care homes have been vaccinated, at least with a first shot, that death toll is falling off, and a brief by Ontario's COVID-19 science advisory table shows that prioritizing long-term care residents for vaccination played a, cl- a critical role. So, so here's what they calculated. Uh, they said that by doing what we did, that more than 2,100 additional infections were avoided, and there would have been more than 250 deaths, uh, sorry, hospitalizations, and 615 deaths. In terms of the staff doing it, the way it rolled out, um, 590 infections, eight hospitalizations, and one death were prevented. Now, what I say that that's good, but yes, Long-term care was prioritized, but there were caveats. First, there was the idea that the vaccines couldn't be taken into homes, even though that was happening in other jurisdictions. Then General Hillier ordered speed above uh, perfection and lots of hospital workers, including some that didn't have any public-facing roles, got the jab before vulnerable elderly. So I also have the question of how many more lives could have been saved. So let's start with the positive. I'm joined by two of the brief's authors, Dr. Peter Uni, who is scientific advisor of the province's COVID-19 science advisory table, and Dr. Paula Rochon, a geriatrician and senior scientist at Women's College Research Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning, Hi. Dr. Uni. Hi. Uh, let's start with Dr. Uni. So um, what were you trying to show with this brief? Yeah, well, you know, it, it's really important um, to basically keep track of what's going on. We were suggesting earlier on uh, in January that the speed of vaccine rollout in long-term care homes is extremely important. And obviously, now that we actually achieved, you know, after having put all um, eggs into one basket, that we have at least everybody offered the first dose of a vaccine, uh, it was important just, you know, to now try to understand did this really what we presumed it would do, and luckily it did. It actually really prevented cases uh, of infection, prevented hospitalizations, and prevented deaths. That's great news. Mm-hmm. Dr. Rochon? Yeah, I, I think as you started out by saying, you know, this is uh, one of the good news stories that we've had, you know, since the pandemic started. You know, the devastation that's happened in in long-term care, you know, has been something we've heard so much about. And to be able to see, as we did here with these data, the benefit of the vaccine in reducing the cases, the hospitalizations and the deaths, not only in the the long-term care residents, but also among the staff. I mean, that was such an important message that came out of this brief. We also found that, and we also showed as part of this brief, that the public health measures that were implemented 
also were beneficial in helping uh, with reducing these these numbers. So there was just very, very good news uh, that came out for people to show that, uh, you know, the vaccine works, but also the public health measures that we've been doing have been working for this really vulnerable population. Dr. Uni, am, am I being churlish because my recollection of the way everything rolled out was that, uh, yes, long-term care was prioritized, but a lot of people got their jabs ahead of long-term care residents for various reasons. The ones I cited, I've seen a, a, a number which said that between the time the vaccines uh, landed uh, on December 14th and in February, uh, when they were starting to be vaccinated, there were an additional 1,200 deaths in long-term care. Uh, did you look at that at all? Um, In our previous brief that actually looked at the impact of speed, you know, of the rollout in in Ontario long-term care homes, we looked into that and it's clear, you know, that the faster you are, the more cases uh, you uh, prevent, the more deaths you prevent and the more hospitalizations you prevent. Look, you need to look into that from a from a glass uh, half full perspective right now i don't think that everything you know was ideal at the very beginning the, the, the way this looked but um then people really prioritized despite the fact that we had you know limitations with vaccine doses people really prioritized long-term care homes and also retirement homes and this really paid out could it could it have been more ideal of course it always can life is less than ideal there were hiccups at the beginning but i believe that it's still you know important now just to focus on what we achieved and you know this really contributed big time to the to resolving the most challenging problem this province actually had. So I'm I'm still very positive. Could it have been better? Perhaps, yes, I agree with you. But it's still really, really pretty important now to acknowledge, okay, one thing um, that can be checked off, and we now need to continue to try to, to, to get this done as good as it gets. Okay, um, I take your point. I know that sometimes I can be too critical. But but, uh, Dr. Roshan, here is what is worrying me now. So we have, we're still in phase one of priority, and we have a whole smorgasbord of people who are on the priority list. Um, From the way I see, when I look at the countries that have been extremely successful, and also the guidance from Teresa Tam, and, and people like Bonnie Henry, they say prioritize age. And if you prioritize age, you prevent the most death and severe illness. Now, uh, some of the decisions that have been made now, um, intentional, unintentional, at every level, province, uh, local public health, and national decisions uh, are pushing people who are over 80 towards, I wouldn't say the back of the line, but they're, they're not the top priority. There are all kinds of other people that are getting vaccinated, certainly in Toronto, easier here. So I'm afraid that whatever the lesson is in your report, which is very positive, uh, it's, it's not being heard for people who are basically in the same cohort. Well, I think our, our report, you know, going to the group that was most at risk for uh, for death and poor outcome, you know, that was really showing and showing it worked was so, so important. But coming out of that, I think it it also speaks to the fact that, as you're sort of alluding to, that we need to make sure that we get this out to the many other older, vulnerable people who are out there in the population more broadly. So it is extremely important to get it as soon as we can to this older, very vulnerable population because I think, as as you you know, you know, uh, people in long-term care represent a relatively small percentage of the population, and there is a very large percentage of that older population living in the community uh, who need to get the vaccine. So that's definitely a very high priority going forward, and a group that we must prioritize. Well, I mean, I just. Uh bumped into somebody who's in that category and and somebody who is computer savvy and and, and all of that and and 
she can't get an appointment. And I hear, uh, you know, on the show from lots of people, and, and they are asking questions like, uh, Dr. Uni, why is my 30-year-old massage therapist getting a jab before me? Why is a strapping 25-year-old police officer getting a vaccination before me? Dr. Uni? Well, first of all, you need to keep in mind, we are not those who are responsible for implementation. I know, I, so I, I know I, that. I, I absolutely know that. But, you know, there's, so there are two aspects which are really important. First of all, age is extremely important, and the province clearly prioritizes uh, people aged 80 plus, which is great news. Now, there are other aspects which are important, too. Also, if you want to prevent um, infections from being transmitted and, uh, you know, the pandemic from, uh, from keeping out of control. And this is that you also look into, A, the, uh, the neighborhoods that are most burdened by the disease. If you start actually to vaccinate there too, you actually decrease the burden also considerably. If you are a 55-year-old person who lives in a real high-risk high neighborhood in, uh, in Ontario, um, your risk is actually as high as about, you know, in, uh, in one-third of uh, people aged 80-plus in the province to be hospitalized or die from uh, COVID-19. And I think we need to acknowledge that, too. Then there's the other group of people who has direct contact with, uh, with, other, uh, with other people as part of their profession, the essential workers outside of healthcare. And there we just need to find a good way forward. These people have a really high contact rate. They contact other people and can transmit disease. And what we know is, of course, that if we vaccinate people who have a lot of contacts, we actually also protect other people through that if we interrupt the transmission chain. To find a sweet spot there, that's, the, that's part of the ongoing discussion we're having. Right now, when I look at the vaccination plan, at the rollout now, how it looks, I think they could find the sweet spot, provided we have an ac- enough vaccine doses. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, General Hillier was asked, you know, what's, what is your goal? Is your main goal to prevent death and severe illness? Is it to prevent transmission? Is it to get the economy going? And his answer is, uh, we can do all of that. Well, I, I personally, I mean, I, I could be wrong. I don't think we can do all of that that quickly. I think, you know, we needed to pick a lane. Uh, Dr. Roshan, what do you think? Well, I think as, as Dr. Yunis pointed out, it is a very complex piece. But, you know, clearly we're trying to, to also be thinking about those uh, who are at greatest risk. And that often relates to things like age and it relates to some of the other circumstances that we've heard. So as we roll out, I think we need to be thinking about uh, certainly the age factor, but also those other pieces that put people at high risk for poor outcomes. And so if we think about those as we're doing the rollout, which is um, the way things are being looked at now, I think that will be very um We'll, we'll, we'll make a, a big um, impact in making sure that we have the best outcomes. Okay, I'm going to take a call from Marlene in Scarborough. Uh, I see your question on the board, Marlene. I'm not sure uh, people here can answer it, but go ahead. Okay. My concern is with long-term care. Uh, we know it's fluid. By that, I mean that when somebody dies in a long-term care bed, there's at least 10 people on a waiting list waiting for that bed. When that happens, and I'm sure there's been some some changes made to admittance because of COVID, but those people that are coming into the facility have, in most cases, not had their shot. What is the plan for those people? Are they going to be visited and given the shot, or are they going to fall through the cracks? Um, okay, I'm going to see if our pan- let you go and see if our panelists okay. can answer. Uh, do either of you know the answer to that? The silence tells you probably not. Again, okay. remember, we're not in implementation there, right. but it's a I really it. fair point. We need to be aware of being in a long-term care home is the single most important risk factor indeed to uh, to suffer a high burden uh, from uh, from COVID-19. So it's a, it's a really important point that needs to continuously be addressed. 
And uh, I mean, the, the question that I have, you pointed out the importance of, of inoculating long-term care workers, but they aren't compelled to take the shot. And the last stat that I saw on it was truly concerning. Something about a third of them uh, aren't taking aren't taking vaccine. Uh, do you have a reaction to that, Dr. Roshan? Well, I think one of the things that I think our, our, our information coming forward will be helpful is that I think when people see how beneficial the vaccine is, that will really help encourage people to move forward and to get vaccinated. Uh, so I think this, this information and having it um, laid out so clearly will help uh, encourage people who might have been hesitant to see how helpful it is and to get the vaccine. Okay, Dr. Uni. Yeah, and it will be really, really important, you know, to address the concerns people have. You know, it's not enough to say that the concerns that people have are just myths. They are indeed, but we need to take it seriously and really explain also to different groups of people, you know, inside and outside of healthcare, um, uh, how these how these concerns uh, actually were addressed. And, uh, you know, quite a lot of what is out there, like, you know, impact on fertility, that's simply not true. But we need to continue to take that very seriously because these vaccines are really much, much better, for instance, than the flu vaccines that uh, many of us actually just uh, take every year. And they really will be the game changer for the pandemic. And it will continue to be important to keep the dialogue open and really just uh, just um, show people how beneficial this actually all is and that these vaccines are safe and really highly effective. Okay, and Dr. Roshan, um, so what do you hope this report will be used for going forward? Well, just to maybe add on to some of the things that uh, Dr. Uni just said as well, uh, to help in making sure that we're encouraging people to get the vaccine. When we're thinking about uh, the workers, we want to make sure that we're, we're helping them get the vaccine. Like maybe they need some transportation to, to get to where they need to go, or maybe they need to come in early or get time off to get the vaccine. I mean, there's other pieces that we can do to make it easier uh, for them to be able to get that. And so we need to factor in those things as well. In, in terms of the report, I mean, I just think this is, as I say, some of the, the first that we've had here, really um, good information about the benefit of the vaccine. And I think this just does lay it out for us so clearly in terms of how it is so important to um, certainly vaccinate this very vulnerable long-term care home population as we have done, but now how to move it out to the populations more broadly. Those are at risk as a result of their age, but other factors that put them at risk so we can see this further benefit throughout the population. Okay. That is all the time we have. Thank you so much, Dr. Paula Rochon and Dr. Peter Uni. Very much appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks a lot for having us. Okay. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.